Welcome to the Cold Steel Podcast, hosted by Amir Farouk and myself, Chad Paul. We consider it an absolute privilege to bring you guests from around the world who are truly experts in their craft. Our mission is to offer you a combination of not only masterclasses on clinical surgery topics, but also insights into achieving personal growth, productivity, and fulfillment as both a surgeon and perhaps more importantly, as a human. We had the unique opportunity on this episode to speak with the Honorable Minister John Hagee. Dr. Hagee is a general surgeon who spent his career in Newfoundland and Labrador, and at the end of his career as a general surgeon, went on to become elected as a member of the House of Assembly in 2015. He was appointed to be the Minister of Health at that time, and has continued to serve in that portfolio ever since. We spoke to him on this episode about his fascinating life story, his thoughts on leadership and the role of physicians in politics, and about his favorite book, Shogun. Could you tell us about um, where you grew up and, and what your training pathway looked like and, and sort of how you got to where you are now? Yeah, sure. It, it, it's a kind of convoluted route. I, uh, I was born in Manchester in the UK, uh, uh, a boomer, uh, and uh, went to high school there and uh, uh, went to medical school there. It was uh, at a time when there was a big expansion uh, of um, the healthcare system, the National Health Service. Uh, and training local high school students uh, to practice locally was the the aim of the day. And it's a theme that has cycled round and certainly is popular in Newfoundland and Labrador at the moment, again, as a topic. Um, I went to medical school in Manchester. It was direct entry from high school in those days. That was not at all unusual. In actual fact, it was probably the norm. Um, I uh, qualified there and, and then did a series of rotational jobs around Manchester uh, and the south side of Manchester uh, with um, the idea of getting my uh, a fellowship of the, the English college, which I, I got uh, sort of four or five years in. <clears throat> and then the UK system at that time was much more of an apprenticeship style thing. And I, I moved around the northwest of England a little bit in a fairly localized area, went out into Cheshire and Crewe. And then ended up um, switching streams and going down the, the academic surgical route at the University of Liverpool. Uh, and it was there that I realized that probably wasn't the best suited fit for me. Uh, I was much more of um, uh, inclined to the, uh, the practical rather than the research, although I had done uh, a PhD. Um, uh, and in the end, I, I kind of uh, looked around. Uh, and because of the way the job market was in the UK, um, I looked, uh, and English was the only language I was, uh, I was really fluent in. Uh, I applied for a couple of jobs in Canada. Uh, one was in uh, Northern Ontario, uh, and one was with what was then Grenfell Regional Health Services in St. Anthony in uh, Newfoundland. Uh, and they got back to me first, and uh, I moved. A tremendously fascinating life story. I think one of the most important questions we have to ask you, of course, is which football team do you support? Are you a Man United fan? Are you a Man City fan? Are you a Liverpool fan? <laughs> well, uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, and sometimes you, depending on the people you're with and how vigorously they uh, pursue a football, you have to be careful how you answer that. But I grew up in a household that supported Manchester City. Uh, United were the come from aways. They weren't a real working man's team, a uh, real Manchester team. They were imports from afar. Uh, and I grew up not far from Main Road, which was then the home of Manchester City. So 
Uh, when anybody asks me now, that's kind of where I land. Yeah, so you're a true supporter before their uh, more recent success. That's that's fantastic. Oh, yeah. They, <laughs> they weren't successful at all when I was a lad. Uh, yeah, no kidding. So um, you moved to Newfoundland in 1983, and you, you told us about sort of some of the, the motivations for that. What was that experience like coming from the UK and coming to Newfoundland into, in a, you know, a very different kind of uh, environment. What was that experience like? Well, actually it was in the nineties. I arrived in St. Anthony just after kind of the cod left. It was the, uh, the uh, start of the moratorium in Newfoundland and Labrador, which was a huge social and economic upheaval for um, the whole province. Uh, but particularly around the St. Anthony basin uh, and the Northern Peninsula, which was where uh, the facility I was in was based. It was a regional facility. It was supposed to uh, provide health care for a Labrador except for Labrador West uh, and the Northern Peninsula down as far as, you know, Bartlett's Harbour. Um, smaller community, 3,500. I mean, I'd lived in uh, what was, I thought, a fairly small rural community in the UK, but the population there was 35,000. So it was quite the difference, but it, there were very, it was a very hospitable move. It was, it was pleasant. The work was stimulating. It was certainly different. And it was what appealed to me was the true generalist aspect of it, which fitted with the kind of apprenticeship training I'd had. So there was, um, there was a real mix of cases and you were never sure what would come through the door next or, or land at the airport from off the coast. Uh, and that I really enjoyed. Um, uh, with the, uh, I, I got three year, very young daughters at the time. Uh, and it, after a while, um, my wife and I sort of looked and felt that maybe because of them and their uh, changing interests, it might be better if we were in a larger center. So, uh, in 97, we moved to, uh, for me to work in Gander in the center of the island. And we lived in a smaller community called Appleton. And that combination was super. It worked very well for 18 years uh, until 2014. And then uh, again, family changes. So moved into Gander proper, and had a small house built there uh, and then changed streams. Uh, I decided on a retirement gig. Yeah, a gig might might be a, an underestimate of, of of your quote unquote retirement uh, voyage. You, you know, clearly we all work in different environments, and and you've had the the really neat privilege, I think, of of working in a number of different ones. How did working in that that initial Saint Anthony and then subsequently Gander region sort of shape your your view as a as not only a surgeon but also a a person? How how did it impact you? Well, I think several things happened. <clears throat> One was um, I got involved in uh, medical advocacy while in St. Anthony, and it was purely by accident. The, the person who'd been elected to represent the district on the NLMA board didn't like the travel. Uh, for me, uh, looking at it slightly differently, um, I was the only other elected person in, in that area, having been um, elected as president of the medical staff. Uh, and so they kind of offered it to me on the basis that they were looking for anyone who'd say yes. Uh, and again, um, wanting to find out more about how things worked, I did say yes and uh, embarked on a different path uh, for sort of, um, uh, you know, extracurricular work, uh, which I found immensely absorbing and interesting because it taught me an awful lot, I thought, 
about how the system worked. <laughs> I got a real, um, a real surprise in many respects when I found myself in this portfolio 20 odd years later uh, to realize that that was an illusion and I only knew how bits of it worked. So that was, uh, uh, but, but again, <clears throat> that made you think about things in a different way. Uh, you've got the detail of surgery, you've got the challenge of the individual patient, you're putting his stitches in the right place, because I, I was still a stitcher, not a stapler, although the stapler was a great tool for certain cases. Uh, and uh, then in contrast, my out-of-hours activities were around um, strategic and policy discussions. Uh, and I, I really, I really kind of enjoyed those. And I realized that makes me a bit strange, but it was me. I don't think we think that makes you strange at all. It's uh, it's a talent and it's a skill. And you've clearly, you know, had that talent for a long time and, and uh, you know, a few decades now, and you certainly matured it into a, a pretty impressive uh, leadership um, uh, voyage. You correct me if, if I'm wrong, but I remember you as the CMA president in about 2010, 2011. How did that come about and, and how did that impact your, your thought process and your voyage? Well, it's really been a matter of being in the right place at the right time. I mean, I, uh, uh, I served on the uh, board of the NLMA, uh, got interested in, in public relations and you know government relations uh, while I was there ended up in the executive and then ended up being nominated and elected president of the NLMA. Then what happened was there was the first doctor's strike in job action uh, in, in a province since heaven only knows when. Uh, and that kind of uh, gave me a profile amongst my own colleagues. And then uh, fortuitously, uh, you know, I'd served a little bit of time on CMA in, in government relation, political action committee, health policy and economics kind of spheres. Uh, and then the um, the rotation, as it were, for CMA president came around to Newfoundland and Labrador. So we had a very vigorous election campaign, which was really the first campaign I ever fought uh, between myself and three other colleagues here uh, who had um, uh, a background in medical advocacy. Uh, and uh, I won that election. Uh, and then was um, uh, was installed as uh, CMA president, uh, 2011 to uh, uh, to to 12. Uh, so you have a year as president elect, president, and then past president, and that was fascinating too because that showed me a completely different view of healthcare from the the national stage. Uh, it got me into the Ottawa bubble, and and you know it was an interesting and instructive exercise because. There is that bubble effect in Ottawa, uh, and there is that bubble effect in politics. When when the house sits, you you find yourself in need of going back. Uh, in my case, to the NLMA when I was with the CMA, and then in terms of the district now uh, as a minister, you need to go back to your own district to reconnect uh, and kind of fact check some of the things you think you understand about what's gone on while you've been inside the bubble. Uh, but it was a really interesting exercise and. That got me interested in politics in general. Uh, and uh, I got into discussions with uh, my local MP. He and I shared flights on the way back at the end of the, uh, uh, the parliamentary week or the work week I had with CMA. But I got to see every province in this country and it was an amazing privilege to do that. I think I was the first CMA president to do a real rural and remote tour for the president's tour. I went around the top of the country 
I went around Northern BC and Alberta and Nunavut and Cambridge Bay. Um, and uh, then I think I was the first CMA president to visit Labrador while an incumbent and, and great privilege and fascinating. It was like a, a masterclass in uh, healthcare management, healthcare organization. You know, you came somewhat as an outsider, right? You came from the UK to Canada um, and then worked your way into politics, in, into sort of medical politics, and then really made a big transition into, you know, the, the national and, and provincial stage uh, on, on a more broad side level as, uh, and became elected and, and now have been as serving a role as a minister. Um, I wonder, do you think that your outsider role uh, has allowed you to see things in a, in a bit of a different way and with a different light? And is that part of the motivation for you to get into politics in that you could perhaps see things in a bit of a different way than perhaps people who had already lived, always lived in that system? Um, do you think that has played a role in, in your motivation to get involved with leadership in politics? I think it has. I mean, uh, if you go look back at my involvement in medical politics in the UK, it was non-existent. Uh, I did uh, for, again, by accident, uh, become uh, a, a source of um, information uh, when they changed a lot of the compensation systems in the UK in the 80s for doctors in training. Uh, and it was simply because I didn't understand it. And then because I found out people in similar situations found it easier to come and talk to me. But when I came to Canada, I realized that whilst I spoke English, I didn't speak Canadian or Newfoundland English and words I thought had a specific meaning would be used completely differently here. Some in a good way and some in a really unfortunate way. So uh, I stopped making assumptions that I knew what was going on and tried very hard to find out what was going on uh, by getting involved. The best way of finding out what's going on, I found, is to actually throw yourself into it. Uh, and that's kind of what I did. And, and the more I knew, the more I realized I needed to know. Uh, and at some point, you do have some ideas where you think you can actually change the status quo in a way that will make things better. Uh, however you define better. And so that's kind of been my motivation for going to the next step. Uh, and uh, I think looking at it slightly differently has certainly helped in some of the policy and strategy discussions. I mean, you can't bring in ideas from another jurisdiction and expect them to work unchanged or unfiltered. And the other thing is because of the discussions that I've had to have to try and figure things out, I've also learned that no good idea can't be made better by further discussion and input from other people. So I think that's helped me make better decisions and, and provide maybe better direction for the organizations I've kind of led or represented. Yeah, I think that's such a profound way of looking at things and, and trying to understand how, how you can best serve the people that, uh, that you're, you've been sort of tasked with serving. And you know, you've been quoted as saying that Shogun is your favorite book. Um, You've been reading, indeed. Uh, well, I've read it seven or eight times. So, so you know, that's. can you tell us a little bit about that book? And again, that's sort of the story of this outsider who comes into Japan and really gets incorporated into this totally different culture. Um, so, but can you tell us a little bit about that book and, and maybe a little bit about how that's informed your understanding of politics and leadership? 
Well, there's several levels to it. I mean, the book has a whole layer of plots, which I think on first or even second reading you miss. It's a very intricate book. Uh, it appeals to my interest in history. I grew up, I was raised by a historian. Uh, and whilst I didn't pursue that at high school, it's kind of hobby reading for me now. Uh, the other thing is the author. The author spent four years in Changi prison camp in Singapore as a prisoner of the Japanese. And yet his books, uh, of which Shogun I think is the best personally, um, and uh, then, you know, Taipan and Noble House and this kind of thing, are all very much pitched in the culture of the people who held him captive for four years. And under some of the worst circumstances of any prisoners of war, I had the privilege as a resident, uh, a house officer, an intern, as you would say here, um, of looking after some of what we call the FIPOs, Far East Prisoners of War. And their physical health was appalling 20 years after the war had ended, 30 years after the war had ended. Uh, and yet Clavel made that book about the, 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 the very good things of the military code that had nearly killed him. He in, in uh, uh, Shogun, seems to convey this um, uh, admiration for Bushido. And um, it's interesting because the character of uh, Blackthorn, the pilot, starts off hating the Japanese in the way that they have treated his colleagues, very much like Clavel must have. And yet at the end of it, he is the only friend of the Shogun. Yeah, that is such a deep read. And the TV show yeah. that they made with Richard Chamberlain yeah. was a travesty. Yeah. It was a pastiche, yeah. and it was truly <laughs> appalling. Yeah, yeah, I'd forgotten about that until I oh. went back and uh, reviewed the book again. You're, you're absolutely right. It was terrible. It was, hi it was hideous. <laughs> um, uh, you know, the best thing about it was Toshira Mifuni, uh, who was the uh, the shogun role in that. Yes. Um, uh, probably was unknown in the UK and it didn't harm his reputation. But Richard Chamberlain was a mess. Yeah, Sorry, totally, Richard. totally. You, you know, one of the things I think that physicians often talk about, and Namiro and I have talked about this theme on, on a number of podcasts, is the, the sort of um, a flirting with or, or idea of getting involved in, um, you know, you can use many different terms, but really politics in general. What is it about about your voyage where you actually walk through that threshold? And why do you think that perhaps many physicians who talk about doing it might be absolutely superb contributors and candidates for some of these roles don't actually uh, um, launch themselves over that obstacle? Well, I mean, just, just on the surface, I mean, you go from maybe the third most respected profession in the, in the world, in the country, to the second last or even the last, depending on your views on used car salesmen and tax collectors. Um, uh, so, I mean, there is that. There's certainly no, uh, no real incentive uh, in a material way uh, to, to taking this role at all. And if I think you are fair to everyone, nobody really likes you all the time. You will have days when you have a fan club out there and they will not say anything. 
And then you'll have days when everybody really doesn't like you, particularly if you adopt a, a more visible leadership role as a spokesperson for a department or, or a, a minister of the crown. And I think you do have to be fairly thick skinned. Healthcare is not for the faint hearted, um, either at a senior executive management administration level or at this kind of level, because it is so emotional. Um, having the surgical mentality, I think, does assist, uh, but it's no guarantee. Uh, and my personal experience over the last six years is that um, the more widespread forms of social media are not kind because they actively filter out reasonable discourse and they actively deter um, sensible converses. Uh, and so you can't really spend a lot of time looking at that. Those are the downsides. The upside is I work with a great bunch of civil servants who, again, could walk out the door here anytime and double or treble their salary in the private sector. And yet they work seven days a week, some of them, uh, with, with no overtime. Um, uh, and they're thoughtful, they're bright, they're energetic. Uh, they've been really stressed through COVID, just like everybody in health has been. But the people you work with make the job. And I think that's one of the challenges of healthcare. When everybody's tired and everybody's fatigued, it is hard to go to work sometimes. Uh, and um, that's when the best thing you can do, as one person once said to me, is wake up, dress up, show up, and look pleased as though you're there. Uh, you know, because at the end of the day, as a physician, people look to you to set the tone uh, in a, a crisis or on the floor, uh, you know, doing rounds. Uh, and similarly here, if, if you look as though you really want to be somewhere else, uh, it doesn't help in the slightest, and in actual fact, is a huge deterrent. But it's a hell of a job some days to do it. You, you know, you you touched there just briefly on on COVID nineteen, and and you know, Amir and I really wanted to ask you about that specifically. Functioning as the Minister of Health during such a crazy historic time, what were some of the principles that you uh, used or employed to to navigate the pandemic in in your uh, a province and and how did that relate nationally and and what did you learn from from this whole I imagine tremendously challenging uh, time period? Sit and think as fast as you can and as long as you need to. You don't know everything and the world will shift under your feet at a moment's notice. So be prepared to acknowledge that. Uh, and one of my mantra sayings has been and continues to be the only constant thing about COVID was change and the need to adapt to it. We had a small but super team of public health physicians and, and uh, CDC staff and, and, and such. Uh, and really and honestly, uh, they provided stellar advice. Uh, and uh, we had premiers who were prepared to listen uh, and acknowledge the same comments I've just made that you didn't know where you were going to go. Uh, but yet also between us, we could come up with the, the ideas that there were ways off the hook, you know, vaccination was a key. Uh, we put a huge amount of effort into driving that. And the people of this province were super because uh, our adult vaccination rates usually suck. Our pediatric ones are excellent. And I think would rival anywhere. Um, but they listened 
uh, and they stepped up. And our vaccination rates in adults, I think, are as good as you'll see in any jurisdiction in the world. Uh, but it was a slog. It was, you know, um, the battles won and lost in, in your head. It, it, it's a question of endurance. Uh, and every so often, each of us needs, you know, four or five hours when you sit down or a night where you can just have a drink with your family uh, and uh, just recharge a little bit uh, because you've got to keep going and you can't. It's a marathon. So you've got to pace yourself. Uh, those were the kind of things. Uh, and we look back. I mean, I dug out some and had other people dig out references to the flu pandemic in, in Newfoundland and Labrador. And there were some really good archives from Twillingate and from St. John's. Uh, and a lot of the the challenges that we saw evolve around masks, um, not so much vaccination, but certainly around masks and public health measures uh, and the pushback and the, the dynamic, the tensions there, they were repeats of 1918, 1919, either here or in New York or in St. John's. Uh, and so there were some parallels to be drawn, uh, but it was certainly a challenge. And the other thing was you just need to get yourself out there and be prepared to take the knocks from the naysayers. But you've got to go out there in front of the media and you've got to recruit the media to help you because uh, notwithstanding social media, which we used a lot, uh, traditional media is still has a, a crucial role to play, particularly in the kind of long-form analyses and the long-form reads. Uh, social media tends to find people who are oil experts one day, economists the next, and then suddenly virologists the day after. So you have to learn to live with that. Dr. Hagee, you know, many public health officials and, and people involved in health during COVID were hated. And, you know, there's been a number of really good um, analyses uh, about particularly public health officials in the U.S. who actually faced a tremendous amount of hate and criticism for their roles with COVID-19. I, I think uniquely, you actually became quite loved for the way that you handled many aspects of the pandemic. And in fact, you, you know, there's this whole hagiisms type thing that was born where people were like embroidering your sayings on the on 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 various things like one of my favorites is like your your phrase please don't let them lick the handle of the shopping cart or you know another one was like if you swipe right on tinder you might get more than than what you bargained for how did you kind of latch onto this very kind of pithy um you know memorable kind of way of speaking and, and rather than i think the the verbose things that we're usually used to hearing from from our elected officials well, I mean, I, I got myself in trouble as a resident because I used to use humor to try and, you know, diffuse tense situations. Uh, it works. But the one thing I learned the very hard way was you really had to be very careful about it. To be honest, um, the first few COVID briefings that we did, I, I had no notes. <laughs> there was no script to run this by. Uh, and my poor communications director got told off once by someone for not preparing the minister adequately. Uh, but there was no prep you could do. We settled into a routine. And some of these phrases just popped into my head. I mean, I've got, you know, three daughters. They've got grandkids. And, you know, teething toddlers chewing on the handles of a shopping cart is just something you so, used to see in supermarkets and, and uh, big stores. Uh, and the Tinder piece, I mean, you know, there, there was a huge discussion on the internet, of course, around that time about, you know, sexual transmission of um, COVID-19. Uh, and 
there were some really amusing comments and I thought that was the only one that seemed to me to be fit for general consumption because we were talking about the use of, of apps and I don't know why the media went that route, but I think they were struggling for questions as well because I know they used to look at their Twitter feed and their personal emails in an attempt to, to, to find material. So um, it just popped up organically. Um, and I think it did help because it made you a bit more relatable because you're right. Uh, I dislike government speak as much as the next person, but there are occasions when you really need to be extremely careful of even the the adjective or the noun that you use in a certain circumstance for most people it probably isn't that crucial but there are always groups who will um, be looking to see themselves in what you're talking about not necessarily covid but pretty well anything uh, and you have to be aware that your audience is not the general public there is no general public there is the public in general made up of um, groups with uh, different views and you have to buy, try and be respectful of those so that's why the language is often so um, so formal and there's a place for it don't get me wrong but there's also a place for a little bit of spontaneity and i think in the early days when everyone was looking at doom and gloom when we had our first cluster and that kind of thing it, it just kind of rolled off the tongue well, your, your humor and wit have become uh, a national celebrity, so to speak. So, I, you know, I wish we had more of that uh, uh, in all of our interactions. It's, it's certainly welcomed. There's no question that, you know, COVID and the, and the current pandemic has probably been one of the biggest challenges, I think, in all of our lifetimes on the healthcare side. Um, you know, we continue to struggle in many ways, I think, in many provinces, in particular the province I'm in in Alberta right now on the healthcare side. But I, I'm curious both locally as well as nationally, where do you see um, Canadian healthcare um, in terms of challenges over the next, say, five or 10 years? Where are we going and, and where do you see those speed bumps coming? I think there's a splitting of uh, approach. Back when I went into, uh, into this business, for want of a better word, it was very much that technology was going to solve the problems. You needed a better diagnostic scanner. You needed a fancier cardiac surgery procedure, or you needed a different cancer drug. And those have a place. There's absolutely no doubt about it. But what has become very obvious in Canada, particularly in those provinces with an aging demographic, Alberta may be slightly different at the moment in terms of where they are there. Certainly in terms of Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, we need a rock solid primary care provision system. Uh, and our health accord uh, document has started as walking down that road and has really provided us with uh, a snapshot and, and an analysis uh, to, to put it into a cohesive package. And so really it, it's kind of low intensity, sometimes low tech uh, community level engagement with people who have chronic illnesses that is gonna make the biggest difference. Uh, and long-term, We've always known, but kind of paid a bit of lip service to the issues around preventative medicine and social determinants of health. Our Health Accord NL document ties all that together. And so we're looking as a government at the things outside my shop that will make a difference. So uh, how do you lift people out of poverty? What's the role of minimum income guarantee? Does minimum wage work in that regard? Um, 
what about housing, particularly in our more rural areas? And we have, uh, uh, you know, several indigenous partners we need to work with uh, who we could uh, uh, support as they work their way through challenges which are, are more noticeable than the, the non-indigenous communities, for sure. So um, I think uh, those two threads have to be balanced because one is very expensive, very glitzy, uh, attracts fundraising from foundations and this kind of thing. And the other is very low key, very understated, but uh, for my grandchildren will make more difference. One of the questions we try to ask all of our guests is if you could go back in time and give yourself advice as a, an early career a surgeon or perhaps even as a chief resident, what advice would you give yourself? Well, in surgery, I would say, listen to the team lead on the floor. Uh, I've had three or four over the course of my career, and they have been absolutely invaluable. Uh, keep your ears open and your mouth shut sometimes. As one of my colleagues says in the house, you got two ears and one mouth. Uh, there's a message there. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. We love to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback. So send us an email at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at CanJSurge. Thanks again.